Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast with all the most important news about sea slugs that you never thought you needed. Yeah, that is the greatest story ever. It's coming up on the show today. Uh, I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm our features editor. Joining us today is staff writer Claire Wilson, executive editor Richard Webb, and features editor Alison George. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. What a bursting pod we've got today. Uh, And as well as that amazing sea slug story, uh, coming up, we've got COVID latest. We've got uh, that most startling life form of the week. And we've got a piece on the joys and science behind cold water swimming. And we have news on a new way to get spacecraft easily between planets (laughs) and a really mind-bending new examination of reality. Woo! But before all that, it's time to remind you that you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and get your discount. And also, after listening to this, do go and listen to our sister podcast, Escape Pod, to really get away from it all. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. But we're going to start with some more upbeat COVID news, which is something we've not been able to do as much as we'd like over the last year. Yes, some good news about various aspects of the crisis. In the US, the authorities have said now that people can mix in private properties without social distancing or wearing face masks. Uh, That's once they've been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. So this means families and friends will finally be able to meet again after so long, which is going to be so wonderful. Um, And of course, that's after everyone's fully vaccinated. And so far, that's just in the US, not in the UK. But it is a good sign. And another bit of good news, Claire, is that we now think that one dose of a coronavirus vaccine may be all that's needed for people who have already been infected with COVID-19. Yes, um, we need to be a bit careful because these are just a couple of uh, small studies that suggest this. Um, But it does seem that in people receiving the Pfizer, BioNTech and the Moderna vaccines, the body's response to a natural infection with the coronavirus seems to act like a, a bit like a first dose of the vaccine. That would make sense, right? Because if you've had the virus, your body will have already made antibodies to it. Yeah, it does make sense. And the people I spoke to were saying this is not that surprising, but it is very nice to have some initial evidence of it. Um, But we should remember that it isn't a policy yet in the UK or anywhere else, I believe, to tell people that they can skip their second dose. This is more at a stage of uh, some interesting early research. 
And also, one researcher I spoke to, Stephen Evans at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, pointed out that there are other aspects of the immune response that may still be improved by two doses, such as T-cell activity. And he actually said uh, to me, well, if I were offered two doses, I would take them, whether or not I thought I had been infected, because it it probably will boost your overall immune response, uh, the whole broad response, and it might make you more likely to respond to any of the new variants. And the other good news this week is that some people with long COVID, so persistent symptoms, are reporting improvements in their health after being vaccinated against the coronavirus. Yes. Uh, again, this is early work. It's based on anecdotes and a small informal survey rather than a, a proper scientific study. But um, these early signs, they might offer clues about what causes these uh, long term persistent symptoms. So one idea about long COVID is that people's immune systems uh, are unable to get rid of the virus. So it persists in reservoirs in the body, maybe the gut. And this is leading to a kind of low level background inflammation throughout the body. So if you are thinking that that there's this virus reservoir that was never properly cleared out, you can imagine how um, getting a vaccine could just tip the balance back in your favour by killing off those last bits of virus. So these stories and more are all in the magazine this week. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week. Rowan, what have we got this week? Right, so this is one of my favourite organisms of all time now. Um, But before I talk about it, have anyone in the pod ever wondered why there aren't animals that photosynthesise? Because this is something I used to wonder about quite a lot. I didn't realise I hadn't wondered about it. (laughs) Yeah, until Uh, you mentioned that, yeah. Well, it's going to bug you now. Um, (laughs) Well, so the life form of the week this week is sea slugs, and they're fascinating animals because they are one of the very few animals that can photosynthesise. They eat algae and then use the chloroplasts in the algae to photosynthesise and then keep the sugars that the, the plant cells make. I remember when that story first came out, you know, when this was discovered that, you know, basically there's a solar powered animal. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So that that's on its own is enough to get a life form of the week slot. But this week, there's, they're in the news for something else. Uh, they, these animals self-decapitate to deal with parasites. So they <laughs> they detach them, themselves from their bodies if things are getting a bit much. I mean, it seems like kind of an extreme strategy (laughs) yeah it does it does um but it it seems like it's a worthwhile strategy for these animals um it's an amazing story so the researchers working on the slugs noticed one day that there was a living severed head in the laboratory when they came into work oh my god can you imagine coming into the lab that day just you know (laughs) living severed head yeah yeah um they they found that the severed heads of at least two species of sea slugs can move eat and maybe even eliminate waste during the one to three weeks it takes for their bodies to grow back after they've uh, been detached at the neck so it's the the severed heads regrow bodies it's not that the bodies regrow heads (laughs) No, no the headless bodies do live for a little while like just live out the rest of their sorry little lives but with the heart beating but then the, the flesh decomposes yeah but they never regrow heads um uh, well, the heads <laughs> regrow bodies so you know at least one out of two is not bad um and the researchers found that all these slugs had a groove around their neck that they call the, the predetermined breakage plane and when they tied a little string around the necks of six 
lab-grown slugs, um, they found that all six severed their own heads at this groove, generally within a day. Okay, so they've evolved to deliberately lop off their own heads, um, which is not something I even imagined was possible. Um, yeah. But um, so why why did they do this again? So they think it's to remove internal parasites. So if you're chock full of parasites, you can't reproduce properly. And as an extreme strategy, you might as well just chop your own head off, jettison the body and grow a new one. But it is risky because if you're an old slug and do this, you might not manage to regrow your body, which could be a, you know, it might seem like a silly thing to do. But if you're going to die anyway, you might as well try it. Um, and then you might end up with a, a nice regenerated new parasite free body. Time out. Time to remind you about a range of live online events that have been really popular, especially during lockdowns and restrictions recently. There's a whole load of subjects. There's something for everyone. And a big attraction this year is our Big Thinkers series. And you can find out about all of these things at newscientist.com slash events. Yes, and coming up on March 25th, we have a live lecture from anthropologist Ella Al-Shamahi. She explores the untold science behind one of the oldest, most familiar, and frankly, one of the most missed currently human gestures, the handshake. So what is its biological purpose? How do tribes that have been uncontacted by other groups of people even know what a handshake is? Um, in this talk, she'll weave together biology, evolutionary history, and anthropology um, to examine the power of touch and, and argue that the handshake is at least 7 million years old and probably even embedded in our DNA. Wow, embedded in our DNA, a handshake. Uh, it's going to be great. Go to newscientist.com events to find out about how to sign up and while you're there, go to newscientist.com slash newsletter to find out about all our amazing free email newsletters. And next up, we're going to take a big plunge. It's eight o'clock in the morning and I'm standing on the banks of the River Cam near where I live. It's a beautiful morning, but rather chilly, about four degrees centigrade. And the water isn't much warmer. It's about six, I think. And I'm about to uh, go for a swim. I'll tell you more when I get back inside. But right now, I'm going to take the plunge. Ooh. Ah. It's cold. Ooh. <laughs> That's, uh, that was Alice and George. Ali, uh, you were having your cold water swim there. Uh, but tell us why. Well, uh, it was a bit of a challenge during COVID times to try and keep uh, swimming through the winter in the river. Plus, uh, you'd have to have been uh, living under a stone um, not to have noticed all the reports in the media about how good it is for you. And I wanted to um, find out for myself what all the fuss is about and also to look into the evidence for the supposed uh, health benefits to see if there's anything more to it. Uh, than the joy of being in nature and uh, the sort of buzz from defying the cold. And you can read about what I discovered in this week's magazine. All right. So the idea that the, the cold water shock can you know, give you a health benefit, that's not really new, though, is it? No, um, certainly lots of people in Finland uh, go in their water in all sorts of uh, cold weather and think it's uh, very important. Well, they have a sauna to go in afterwards, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and also in um, 
Victorian times in Britain, um, there was the great and the good used to flock to Morven for a water cure, which involved being wrapped in um, cold, wet sheets and getting really cold and shivery and having ice cold showers. And um, Charles Darwin went there for a couple of months to help with his um, nervous wow. indigestion. Um, and Florence Nightingale went many times to help with the anxiety she suffered after her nursing efforts in the Crimean War. And she credited wow. water cure with saving her life. It seemed to work for them. But I mean, they were a essentially on holiday from their normal lives and uh, Darwin was told he should do no work no exertions of the brain so it's really hard to work out whether the cold water was a crucial element of this cure. Yeah so that must be a problem um, when we're trying to investigate it properly these days right? Yes yes I mean it could be that um, getting cold really does shock your body to better health but it's really hard to tease about the factors when you're doing something like swimming outdoors because um, when you do that you're out in nature and we know that these blue green spaces are really good for our mental health there's a really good feature coming up in new scientists in a couple of weeks on that you're also getting exercise um, it's a sociable thing to do because you should really should swim with someone else when you're outdoors for safety reasons and all these things uh, are beneficial for well-being so how do you tease apart the relative importance of getting cold so so how do you well, there are some really clever ways. Um, there's a group of researchers who study um, a protein in the brain that protects neurons, which is induced by the cold. And they um, found a very clever way to investigate this. They found a group of swimmers who swim uh, in an outdoor pool on Hampstead Heath in London, and they compared the levels of these swimmers, uh, the protein the, and, the, and the blood of these swimmers, to people doing Tai Chi at the side of the pool. Um, at the same time and the cold swimmers got uh, more of the protective protein and the tai chi people didn't get any so you know it gives if you have a cold dip you get a, a shock but what does that mean well it's literally uh, a shocking experience um cold water is highly efficient at grabbing heat from the body we we need to stay our core temperature to stay at 37 degrees c so your body has powerful mechanisms to um keep the heat in you automatically hyperventilate when you get into cold water and taper take a deep gasp yeah. your blood vessels uh, restrict in your peripheries and your heart rate goes up it's like an exaggerated fight or flight response um the kind of reaction you'd get if a tiger jumped out at you do you still get that when you go cold water swimming or have you got used to it I um, have really got used to it. I get very, very cold afterwards, but it isn't so much yeah. to get in. I find it hard to believe that I can say that because I never thought that would happen. So that's really interesting, isn't it? That the fight or flight response is the thing that might actually be good for you. Yes, it's very interesting. And you can read mm. uh, more about that in my story in the magazine this week. Fantastic. We'll post a link to that uh, in the show notes. Thanks, Ali. <laughs> That's the sci-fi alert. What is the bonkers sci-fi thing this week, Rowan? <laughs> well, I'm sure you've been kept awake at night worrying about how to power spacecraft across long distances without running out of fuel. I can't count the sleepless nights over that one. <laughs> well, maybe this will help. Uh, for a long time, there's been an idea to use light as the thrust for spacecraft, like literally using the pressure of photons in light to push your spacecraft along. And people have talked about using solar sails that use this pressure as the means of propulsion and you can do it with the light of the sun or um, even better you can shine a laser at your spacecraft and, and 
sort of thrust it away from you like that. And now someone's actually done this? Yeah, there's a demonstration model of something called the photonic laser thruster, and it moved a 750 gram mock satellite along a track in a laboratory, but only using the power of light. Wow. So, yeah. so how does it actually work? You know, we talked about this in a story a while ago from one of Yuri Milner's projects, didn't we? Yeah. So Yuri Milner, he's the Israeli-Russian billionaire. Uh, he's funding something called Breakthrough Starshot, which is a project to use a giant laser to accelerate a space probe to 20% the speed of light, which is very fast, uh, much faster than what, the, what they've done in the lab with this uh, mock satellite. But one of the problems with uh, with Yuri Milner's idea is that you need a giant laser, and uh, a laser that big is basically a weapon of mass destruction, and you know it would cause a lot of political problems if someone <laughs> builds one. <laughs> okay, so they basically got round that problem. Yeah, they uh, the photonic laser thruster uh, gets around that by using by bouncing the laser beam back and forth many times between the spacecraft and the laser source. And each time a little extra energy is imparted to the craft. Um, and that's they call that laser recycling. Uh, and the team working on that think that eventually you'd be able to get payloads going between Earth and Mars uh, much faster than using conventional rockets. So what's the sci-fi link to all of this? Yeah, it's been around a while in sci-fi. Arthur C. Clarke had a solar sail in one of his books, uh, you know, years and years ago. But I'm going to go to something more recent from Alastair Reynolds' uh, 2016 book called Revenger, which is about space pirates with solar sails. Now, I hope all of this preceding discussion has warmed up your brain because it's time to question the fabric of reality and everything we believe in. No. Now, Richard, you're sort of the go-to person to talk about this kind of thing. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. I'm like a cold spring ready to unleash some quantum weirdness on the world. <laughs> yeah, this is sparked by the cover story of this week's magazine by the physicist Carlo Rovelli, in which he sets out his idea that quantum weirdness isn't as weird as we think it is, as long as you accept that things don't exist, or at least not in the way we think they do. Well, that's nice and easy then. Yeah, it makes me think of the, the jibe supposedly by um, the quantum physicist, physicist Richard Feynman, who said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you haven't understood quantum mechanics. That is a gratuitous clip of some bongo, bongo drums, which Feynman was famous for, as well as all his physics and his Nobel Prize and stuff. But anyway, Richard, uh, but to invert uh, what Feynman said, if I never thought I understood quantum mechanics, does that mean I do understand it? Uh, no, Rowan, that's your own weird, fuzzy quantum logic. Uh, <laughs> but but the, weirdness, the weirdest problem, the thorniest problem of all, in the quantum world is the quantum measurement problem, which is which is basically how our concrete classical reality arises from a quantum world that seems to be only fuzzily, probabilistically defined. So remind us why it's called the quantum measurement problem. Basically, it's because the maths of quantum theory, at least, seems to attach great importance to the act of measuring the quantum world, by which we really mean just, just looking at it. Before we measure something, quantum objects such as particles, be they atomic electrons, photons of light, whatever, are defined by mathematical entities called wave functions, which give you probabilities for all sorts of measurements you might make of the particle's position, say. And yet, when we measure the position of a quantum particle, we always find it in one defined place. 
the wave function collapses in in the jargon. Yeah, I've heard of that, the famous collapse of the wave function. Yeah, well, well, at this point, you might still say that's just maths. But the thing is, experiments in the real world show that when you make the same measurement on identical particles over and over again, you'll get different results according to the probabilities given in the wave function. It really is as if all those probabilities encoded in the wave function exist simultaneously prior to measurement. And your act of measurement forces quantum reality to to define itself, to make one of those possibilities real. (laughs) (laughs) So what does, if the wave function collapses, what does that mean? What does, what does quantum reality look like on its own, like before we measure it? (laughs) Well, we don't know. Um, (laughs) One answer also disparagingly was once called the shut up and calculate approach (laughs) is is more formally known as the copenhagen interpretation named after the city where a lot of early quantum physics was done in the 1920s and it and it basically says quantum theory isn't equipped to tell us about the nature of reality but that doesn't matter look the theory works so what's the problem and that that really is a cop-out though isn't it Oh, yeah. Others say that this is a massive problem. The whole point of physics is to explain how the nuts and bolts of the world work. It's all very well for the for a theory to tell you what, what the outcomes are. But if, if it can't tell you why, what's going on beneath the surface, that's deeply unsatisfying. It, it means, arguably, quantum physics it isn't a physics theory at all. It's just a mathematical framework. And that math- mathematical framework leaves us with a, a seemingly absurd picture. And this is where... Um, Schrodinger's infamous cat thought experiment came in. You basically, you imagine instead of a quantum particle, you have a cat in a box with a vial of poison that in a process triggered by the radioactive decay of a quantum particle might have smashed, killing the cat. So before you look at it, is the cat alive or dead? Um, Or is it alive and dead? Because that's what quantum theory would suggest. Uh, So Erwin Schrödinger um, invented this scenario back in the 1930s, basically to have a pop at the Copenhagen interpretation to say, it's absurd to say the cat has no reality before you look at it. To it, to the cat itself, it's either alive or dead. So where are we now with understanding the measurement problem? (laughs) Well, as I said before, not very far. (laughs) Interpretations that say, and there are so many interpretations here, but there are ones that say we or conscious observers actually do do the collapsing of the wave function and somehow construct reality around us. They don't seem to work because what did the collapsing before there were conscious observers around? That takes you down strange alleyways of panpsychism that say basically everything in the universe has a degree of consciousness and can collapse things. Oh, God. Yeah, and we haven't even mentioned many worlds yet, the many worlds interpretation that that actually we don't collapse anything, but that when we measure something, the world uh, and everything in it, like all copies of ourselves, <laughs> splits off into parallel worlds. Uh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> I mean, that's that's it. I mean, that's great sci-fi made um, reality, but yeah. if it is reality, but it's yeah. at best a partial answer to the quantum measurement problem. It's something we have no something we have no physical explanation for is still happening at this mysterious point of measurement. And uh, and what's more, very recent experiments in, in the past couple of years or so seem to suggest that none of these interpretations so far advanced cuts the mustard. They all lead to absurd situations where two different observers of quantum reality can hold probably contradictory views about the state of reality at the same time. <laughs> 
So now, so help us. <laughs> yeah. Well, Obi Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. We sit here in stunned silence. <laughs> Carlo Rivelli says he's got an answer to all these problems. And, yes. Well, I think yes. I'll just I just talk myself out a bit. As I, no. <laughs> as I said at the beginning, it's all about things not existing in the way we think they do. And I think if you want to know any more, you'll have to read the magazine. To find ah, out. God. <laughs> You tease, Richard. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, on that tantalizing note, that's all for this week. Um, thanks, Ali, Claire, and Richard for joining us. And thanks to all of you You're for welcome. listening. We'll post links to all the stories we've spoken about in the show notes. And do listen to our sister show, Escape Pod, uh, which this week is all about escape. And remember, as a valued listener, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist. You get 20% off if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20 and subscribe. Goodbye for now and take care out there. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Ollie Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.